Well, good morning, church. It's good to, uh, good to see everyone here today. Uh, we're looking forward to our time of fellowship after with the potluck. Um, if you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you at this time to please open them to Revelation chapter 4 as we continue to move through this final book of the Bible. And this morning we'll be looking at the whole chapter, verses 1 through 11. It's a smaller chapter, we'll be looking at the whole thing together. And, and this, chapter 4, marks the beginning of the second of seven cycles or seven sections in the book. You can divide the book of Revelation into seven different parts. And the reason I keep bringing this up is because it's important to understand the structure of the book that will help us to understand what's going on. And it's arranged in seven groups of seven, each of them looking at the same thing, the span of the church uh, from the first century till the return of Christ, but each of them looking at it from a different angle. The seven churches that we have just finished shows judgment beginning in the house of God. The seven seals shows suffering, especially of God's people in the world. The seven trumpets place the emphasis on the suffering of the wicked and, and so on. And some of these cycles have introductions. Just like there was an introduction to the seven churches where John was taken up and he saw the Lord in the heavenly places, the same thing happens here. And what introduces this cycle of seven seals is a vision of the Lord on His throne. And really, it's chapters 4 and 5. They, they go together, but for time's sake, we're only going to do chapter 4 today. But this is part 1 of two chapters, two parts, that go together that give us a picture of the Lord sovereign and ruling and redeeming and judging from His throne. So let's read Revelation 4, verses 1 through 11. After this, I looked... And behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four uh, Twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal." And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne, and they worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before that throne, saying, Worthy are You, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created." 
Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. All of it. I pray, Lord, that you would help us this morning to see, Lord, what it is you would have us to know in your Bible. You have given it to us. It is a gift. This book of Revelation is a blessing to those who hear it. And I pray, Lord, that this morning we wouldn't miss the blessing. It's given to us to strengthen the church and build her up and and keep her, Lord. That is your purpose in it. And to do that by giving us a great vision of you. And so I pray, Lord, that this morning we would have greater thoughts of who you are. That, Lord, when we leave this place, we would have a, an enlarged understanding of who you are. That we would know you better than we did when we came in here this morning. And that knowing who you are, getting just a glimpse of your glory, Lord, that it would sustain us through whatever we will face and whatever trials might come. Thank you that, Lord, you are and always will be on your throne. Lord, help me to preach, for apart from you I can do nothing. And help us to hear, because apart from you we can do nothing. But in Christ all things are possible. And so it's to you we offer up our service this morning as living sacrifices, as an act of worship, and we thank you for the privilege it is to do so. Lord, you didn't owe us anything. But Lord, you gave us everything. And so it's to you we give thanks. Amen. You know, one of the most profound books of the Bible in how it deals with human suffering is the book of Job. It's one of the oldest books in the Bible. It took place very early on. Probably Job lived during the time of Abraham. And Job was one of the wealthiest men in the world, maybe the wealthiest. And he was the most righteous man in the world, we learn. And what happened to Job, if you're familiar with the story, in just a few days, he loses everything. His wealth, his servants, his family, all swept away in a few hours, and a few days after that, his health. And the book of Job really is Job wrestling with this loss. And what's so striking about the book of Job is that even though it tells all about the, his suffering, it never actually explains it. You ever notice that? When you're, when you're reading through the book, I think that's why we have such a hard time understanding it. There's not a chapter or a verse that you can put your finger on that explains how to endure trials. There isn't a verse in the book that gives a definitive answer. It's not going to help me to understand exactly what's going on. But the way the book is laid out, it actually teaches us how to think about suffering in the world and especially suffering as the people of God because Job certainly was godly, wasn't he? There was no one more righteous on the face of the earth. In fact, Job's godliness is what invited the difficulties in the first place. And his suffering is tremendous. He loses everything, even his children. And the whole middle section of the book, around 30 chapters, Job is wrestling with his friends in dialogue, and he's wrestling with God in prayer, and he's asking all these questions. Why is this happening? 
What is going on? Is there something that I've done? Is there something hidden? I don't think so. His friends accuse him. He begins questioning the character of God. He begins questioning what justice is. Begins questioning the truth of God. And what Job wants are answers. What Job thinks he needs are answers. He says, if I'm going to make sense of this, if I'm going to endure this trial, I need to know what God is up to. I need to know what God is, is doing. He has some explaining to do if I'm going to make it. I need these questions and these conflicts of my spirit resolved. That's what Job thinks he needs. And that's often how we think, isn't it? God, why are you doing this? Why did you allow this to happen? God, what is going on here? And we're, we're not being malicious when we ask those questions or pray those prayers. We're not being disrespectful. disrespectful. We just don't understand. And if we're going to have peace and if we're going to have closure, we think we need an explanation. But when suffering comes, we really don't need an explanation. That's, that's not what we need. We think it is, but it's not. Do you know what we need? In those moments of trial, what you need more than absolutely anything is a great vision of God. You need to know who it is who sits upon the throne of the universe. And Job, that's exactly what he gets. God shows up in His magnificence and in His wisdom and in His terrifying power. And the last few chapters of the book, when that happens, when God shows up, it is enough. You see, Job thought he needed answers. Job thought he needed to know what was going on. But when God shows up and Job realizes how small he is, how limited his understanding is, and how glorious the Lord God is, when he sees him, all of Job's questions, they just become stupid in his sight. All of the questions that he had fall out of his mind, out of the back of it, and he calls himself a fool for even ever entertaining them. Job thought he needed answers, but what he really needed was God. He needed a greater knowledge of His glory, of His goodness, of His wisdom, of His greatness. That is what carried Job to peace in his affliction. And our need's no different. If we are going to overcome, if we are going to endure, we don't need all of our questions answered. What we need is a grand vision of God. Remember Job, when he sees God, what does he do? He takes his hand and he puts it over his mouth and he says, I don't know what I was talking about. He, and when he, when he sees the Lord, he sees all that he needs. That's why what chapters 4 and 5 in Revelation that's what they give us. They give us a picture of the Lord God in His resplendent brilliance so that we, when we hear or we read about this vision, we can say there is no one like our God. And it's meant to give us a kind, a type, a glimpse of what Job saw. And the reason that this second section in the book of Revelation begins this way is because of where this section in the book of Revelation is going. They're going to be the opening of seals. And if you're familiar with the book, you know that that means suffering is coming. Suffering in the world. Suffering 
that God's people will endure. There is a sense where chapters 6 and 7 deal with the suffering of the righteous, or at least suffering that the righteous will participate in. And we need to be reminded that it's not random, that it's not inconsequential, that things aren't out of control. We need to be reminded that God is on His throne. And God being on His throne means that all of our trials, our pain, our suffering, even unto death, it comes from the hands of a sovereign, wise, loving, just God who is for His people and not against them. That's the aim of this second cycle of seven. God's people will suffer, but God is in control. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, He has overcome the world. In verse 1, it begins very similarly to chapter 1 in Revelation. John is in the Spirit. He sees a vision, and once more he is taken up. And so uh, this similar introduction tells us, it means there's not a, a hard break from everything that's come before. Sometimes Revelation is presented this way. You go from straightforward with the churches, easy to understand, and then things start to get strange and difficult. It doesn't have to be that way. And I, and I hope to show this going forward. These two chapters are not difficult to understand. They can be made that way, but they're, they're actually very simple. Now, they are incredibly symbolic. There's a lot of symbolism happening here, but you know what else is very symbolic? Driving your car down the road. Very symbolic. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, when you look around you, what do you see? You see symbols everywhere. Narrow bridge, uh, yield sign, the lights, stop, slow down, go. They don't tell you what they are. You, if you had never seen one before, you would look at it, you wouldn't know what it, what it meant. But they're symbols. And when you know the symbols, driving is easy, isn't it? You have a handbook, a driver's handbook. It's full of how to teach you what these symbols are. And when you know them, it's not hard if you know what they mean. Well, the same kind of thing is happening here. This ought to be approached really no differently than the seven churches. They're introduced the same way. And where in chapter 1, John sees Christ in the seven lampstands, here John sees a door open to heaven. But it's not a place up in the top of the clouds. It's not pearly gates being opened to him. This is a door to the heavenly temple, and it's opened to John. And so at this point, we, we can pause and we can ask, is there anything similar to what we read about in the Old Testament that might help us to make sense of what's happening here? Is there anything in the Old Testament that might help us to understand the symbols? And the answer is, of course, yes. You may remember in the book of Hebrews, we're told that the earthly temple and tabernacle, the reason why they are to be built with such preciseness, exactly as God told Moses, is because they were a copy, right? 8, 5, Hebrews 8.5, they serve as a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. He's to make it exactly like he was shown because it's a picture of a reality in heaven. And we're about to get a glimpse into that heavenly place in this chapter. And so looking at the construction of the temple and the tabernacle and the purposes of the articles within them helps us to understand what's happening here. 
Now, there are more Old Testament passages alluded to here. Uh, Revelation is a very uh, a book that is very much ingrained in the Old Testament. There's an allusion to Ezekiel chapter 1 and Ezekiel chapter 10, uh, especially in, in chapter 5. There's an allusion to Daniel 7. In fact, almost every aspect of these chapters finds some reference point in Ezekiel or in the construction of the temple. But when you understand those references, things are going to become a lot clearer. When you understand the symbols, they're not going to be so hard to understand. And in verse 2, the vision begins with a description of the throne. And by the way, this is, this is not a literal picture. It's not. It isn't meant to teach us what the throne in heaven looks like. It's not meant to describe uh, what, what heaven looks like, what you'll see when you get there. It's meant to tell us something about the one who sits upon the throne. And by the way, that's the point of the earthly temple and tabernacle as well. Not to teach us about heavenly architecture, but to tell us about the architect of the heavens. Uh, if you're a note taker, I'm going to give you eight points to help you follow along as we work our way through this. And the first, in verse 1, the one who sits upon the throne has the likeness of jasper and carnelian. Those are gemstones, and they're red. And the color here is important because John looks at the throne, and what he sees on the throne is a color. And the color is red, but it's not just any kind of red. Carnelian is named from the Latin word carne, which means flesh or the color of blood. That's why the stone is named as it is. It looks like blood. And jasper, a bright red, is a color often associated with fire and with judgment. And by the way, this is the, the second time in Scripture this throne appears. The first is back in Ezekiel chapter 1. And Ezekiel chapter 1, the throne is mobile. It moves around. It's like you would have seen with ancient kings. How many of you have ever seen uh, maybe ancient Egyptians? Pharaoh, and he's, he's sitting on a seat and he's being carried by poles with servants carrying him around. Well, that's the picture that's presented in Ezekiel chapter 1. You see uh, the grand throne room here, but a kind of chariot throne that servants would carry around on their shoulders. That was a picture of the grand throne. And in Ezekiel, you have this. Ezekiel 1 is a, a kind of mobile throne. It's described in similar terms. It's carried by the angels. And it's a vision of the throne of God. But there's another throne of God in the Scriptures. And maybe you're familiar with it. It's a replica of this throne, one that Moses is told to make. It features often in the Old Testament. And that replica is called the Ark of the Covenant. And if you didn't know, the Ark was, in simple terms, a golden box. It contained the Ten Commandments. It had loops in each corner so that poles could be inserted and it could be carried on the shoulders by the priests. And there on top, completing the ark, was the cover. And this cover was called the mercy seat. And throughout Scripture, it is a, a symbol of the throne of God. And the reason it was called the mercy seat is because it was the place where sins would be atoned for. In Hebrews, it's called the throne of grace where we find mercy. And in the Old Covenant, the way mercy was received was once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies with blood and sprinkle it on top of this ark. And if you could ever see the ark, I mean, you couldn't touch it. Nobody touched it. 
There's one, one man in the Bible who touches the ark and he gets annihilated. He drops down dead as soon as his fingers grace it. Nobody touched it. Nobody cleaned it. If you could see the top of this ark, it would be gold covered in blood. And it meant that this was the place of atonement for God's people. And so it makes sense that when John sees the throne of which the earthly throne is a replica, on it he sees one that is red, the color of the blood that was so often poured out on the mercy seat. And the color represents judgment, the blood of the covenant breaker, but also atonement, where that judgment by blood has been satisfied. And that's the picture that John sees, the blood on top of the mercy seat, the throne of God. It's the first description here, and it reminds us that even though we sin and deserve judgment, those sins have been atoned for. They have been forgiven. We have been forgiven. We're not going to receive what we deserve, but have received mercy. This is only made clearer, number two, by the next description. It's a rainbow surrounding the throne. You see the same thing in Ezekiel chapter 1, and obviously, as any Sunday school student knows, the rainbow is a promise. After God flooded the earth and the evil civilization of Noah's day, when they were wiped out, God sent a rainbow in the sky as a sign of the covenant made with mankind. And this was the covenant. Even though human beings, mankind, are evil from their youth, God promised He would not flood the earth again to destroy it. It's a promise of mercy and of grace. That even though humanity deserves to be wiped out because of their sin, and even though the world ought to be wiped clean, God will be patient and God will show mercy. And there surrounding the throne of glory is a reminder of the mercy of God. And you remember, for mercy to be mercy and for grace to be grace, the one receiving it by definition cannot deserve it. If they deserved it, it wouldn't be mercy. If they deserved it, it wouldn't be grace. The rainbow is a reminder of that mercy. And here, why is there a rainbow around the throne? Because I think the second a redeemed man or woman stands before God and sees Him in glory, they will be flooded with the sense of just how unworthy they are. And the rainbow is a reminder to God's people that even though they do deserve judgment, they will receive mercy. That's a, a comforting thing for a people like us. I think most Christians have a much harder time believing that God is merciful to them than believing that God is just. It's not hard to imagine a God who punishes sin. It's hard to believe in a God who would forgive. And even though we know that God is merciful, we really know how bad we can be. And our sense of sin can sometimes swallow up our sense of grace. Now think about what's coming in chapter 6. The suffering of the righteous. The turmoil in the world. How are you going to endure trials? How are you going to endure difficulties if you're preoccupied with thoughts about your own guilt? If, if you thought that your sins were greater than God's grace, how would you think about trials and sufferings? Well, every trial would become a form of punishment and consequence, wouldn't it? All you would be able to think about is your regret, and you would never have any sense of peace or joy to help you to endure those 
difficulties. And even though God does discipline us, we know that God does discipline us according to Hebrews 12 and elsewhere in Scripture. He does it for our good. It's never punitive as a judge. But sometimes trials come as part of living in a fallen world just like Job. And they're not aimed at any sin in us in particular. They just happen. Just like in Revelation 6 and 7. In this world, the righteous will endure suffering. And if, as Christians, all we can think about is our own sinfulness, we will have a hard time seeing the goodness of God in our suffering. And we'll have a difficult time enduring this. Listen, the answer to that is not make light of our sin. The answer is not, well, I guess the sin isn't that bad, or maybe I'll just put this behind me. No, the answer is making much of the mercy of God. Yes, I am this sinful, but because of the promises of God, I know that God's mercy must be that much greater. The rainbow surrounding the throne reminds us of this, that though we are sinners and sinners who deserve to be scrubbed from the earth, God deals with us according to His mercy and His grace. Number three, our atonement established. In verse four, you find people. 24 of them. And they're most likely the same 24 from chapter 21. The 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. And, and all this means are the Old Testament saints who look forward to Christ's coming and the New Testament saints who look backward in faith and are saved. It represents the people of God, just like we saw in the previous cycle. Those who overcome, that's how they're described. Those who overcome and are present with the Lord on His throne. They're clothed in white. They've received what they were promised. They're finally pure. They've been given authority. They have crowns on their heads. They're in the presence of God, seated on their thrones. This is where you are in the picture, by the way. On a throne, crowned, facing the Lord of glory. And think about what's in front of these saints. They see a rainbow. They see red on the throne. And then in verse 5, from that throne are flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. Number four, because it's a reminder of judgment to come. In fact, four times in the book of Revelation, thunder and lightning appear and they always have to do with judgment against the unrighteous and the ungodly in the world. And it's this judgment that they are spared from ultimately because of the covenant faithfulness of God. And I can't help but here to be reminded of Exodus 20. You remember the giving of the law on Mount Sinai? God appears to the people, and when He appears before them, He appears in thunder and lightning and smoke. And He appears like this for two reasons. One, it's to let His people know that even though it is good to be His people, He is holy. And they dare not approach His throne in an unworthy, unprepared way. And second, it reminds God's people of His law and that it must be kept and taken seriously. God will not overlook iniquity. I mean, how many times do we read in Scripture the Lord uh, in His steadfast love, yet He will not allow the guilty to go unpunished? He's telling us it's a good thing to know the Lord. It's a good thing to see Him. And it's a fearful thing to know Him. It can be a frightening thing to know the Lord. And here before the heavenly throne, you have a balance, don't you? A God who we can draw near to, but a God who we must draw near to in reverence. 
A God who will not dispense on sinners what they deserve, but a God who cannot tolerate the breaking of His covenant. A God who is merciful and gracious, but will by no means acquit the guilty. A God who loves righteousness and who loves the worship of His people. And Psalm 5.5, a God who hates those who do wrong. That's the picture you get here of God. He has atoned for our sins. He will have us. We can, we can look at Him and we can see Him on the throne and yet at the same time, He's beyond anything we could ever imagine. His holiness, His righteousness is so pure. His justice is so perfect. Now what does this say to a suffering Christian? A God like this, one of the things you can be sure of is that He will never, ever do what is wrong. He's never going to sweep sin under the rug. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Genesis 18, 28. Will not the judge of all of the earth do what is right? Abraham asks that as a rhetorical question. The answer is yes. God will always do what is right. He will always make the right decision. He will always do the right thing. He will always bring what is right out of a situation, even though it looks wrong, just like He did with Joseph in Egypt. And we believe that God will always do what is right. When we believe this, our faith is strengthened. Not just by remembering His promises, but by remembering the One who is sitting on the throne, the God who gives us those promises. He isn't like us. As time goes on, sometimes we can become too merciful and overlook things that shouldn't be overlooked. Or we can become too harsh and come down hard on things that really love should have demanded be overlooked. But that doesn't happen to God. He is always perfectly merciful and perfectly ruthless towards evil. He will not allow a single injustice ever committed in all of the world to go unaddressed. Every wrong will be made right. And you can be sure of it. And that ought to make us all the more thankful for what He's done for us. Because if there was a single drop of sin or stain left on us, we would have no hope. But Jesus paid it all. In John 17, He washed us and made us clean. Clean so that we can stand in the presence of the Almighty. Verse 6, it tells us that there are seven spirits in the seven lamps, the seven lamps that are the seven spirits of God. And, and again, this is a picture of the Holy Spirit. You remember the way that the Hebrew would write, sevens were the number of perfection. And this, isn't, this doesn't mean that God has seven spirits. It means there is one spirit and He is complete, perfect, not lacking in any way. And it's a picture of the Holy Spirit. He's depicted in the tabernacle by the seven-armed lampstand that would give light to all of those in the temple that they might see the glories of God. It reminds us as believers, one of the reasons why we see what we see and know what we know about God is because we've been given light by the Holy Spirit. We've been born again. Number six, that was number five. Number six, after that, the sea that is clear and calm like crystal. This too was symbolized in the tabernacle and the temple. In the tabernacle, there was a bronze basin that was used by the priest for the ceremonial cleansing. And in the temple, in 1 Kings 7, it's amplified. Solomon, he's overseeing the construction of the temple, and he has this humongous bronze basin built to hold thousands 
of gallons of water and he put it near the entrance to the temple and it was for the washing of the priests. If they wanted to approach the Lord in His temple, if they wanted to draw near, they had to wash themselves in this basin. And the basin was called the Bronze Sea. Or in the King James Version, the Molten Sea. And again, we are reminded in the book of Hebrews that all of these elements of the tabernacle and the temple are made with precision because they're copies. They're teaching us something about the heavenly realities. <clears throat> and so surrounding everything depicted so far in this heavenly throne room is a vast sea, clear and calm. And you see the point. Anyone who will draw near to God must first pass through that cleansing flood. And it serves as a reminder, just as the priests would have to wash before they went into the temple to do their work, before they could draw near to worship, they had to be cleaned. It's a reminder to us that God has cleansed all of those He has received. And it, uh, they've been made clean by the washing of Christ. I think of Micah 7.19. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. That's where our sins are. If you are in Christ, they're gone forever. Just like a rock thrown into the bottom of the, uh, bottom of the, of the Pacific Ocean. You're never going to find it again. And, and, and even now, though His throne thunders, and even though we must come with reverence, we can come with confidence to draw near to the throne of God and find help in times of need. But there's another symbol here with the sea. It's not just a sea that has been used in the temple for cleansing. The sea is calm. And it's clear like crystal, not a ripple in the whole thing. You ever seen a body of water like that? It almost looks like glass. You know, one of the reasons why we know that this is symbolic is because later on in the book we're told there is no sea in heaven. It disappoints some people. They think, well, no beaches, no vacations to the coast. Well, why does, uh, why does it say there's no sea in the heavens? The reason there's no sea in heavens is because he's writing to the Hebrews. He's writing from a Jewish perspective. And to the Jew, to under, you have to understand, nothing good came from the sea. Storms would blow in from the sea. One of the, the, the Philistines came from the sea. They were, they were called in some places the sea peoples because they came and invaded and pillaged the land from the oceans. Uh, husbands and sons would go out on the sea and be lost. Sea travel was difficult and dangerous. The sea to the ancient Israelite was a source of calamity and catastrophe. What does it mean that the sea is calm and clear? There is no calamity in that heavenly place. God is sovereign over the sea. And whenever a Jew would walk into the temple and see that massive body of water undisturbed, they would be reminded that God is the Lord over the sea and His seas are smooth sailing. His seas are so undisturbed, they are clear as crystal. He's the king of the sea. It's not Poseidon. The Lord is in control. And all of those trials that would come, God is sovereign over them all. And then in verse 7 and 8, John sees four other creatures present on, at the throne. 
And they're described really in a terrifying way. This is number seven for those note keepers. These beings are covered in eyes all over. One looks like a lion, one like an ox, one like a man, one like an eagle. They have six wings and they sing day and night, holy, holy, holy. Well, we know exactly what these creatures are. They are angels. This is what Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6. There he sees seraphim. They're called burning ones with six wings singing praises before the throne of God. But these aren't seraphim. These are like what Ezekiel sees in Ezekiel chapter 1. The vision of the chariot throne with its wheels within its wheels. I mentioned it earlier. The, the throne that is transported around by the angels that's described almost identical to this one. Now there are, of course, some differences. Here they're described as one being a lion, one an ox, one a man, one an eagle. In Ezekiel, each creature has four faces. One of a lion, of an, of an ox, of an eagle, of a man. Here they have six wings. In Ezekiel's they had four wings. But the symbolism is the same. They are angels. They have eyes all over. They see all things. They are strong like lions, useful like oxen, wise like men, and swift like the eagles. All of their abilities utilized to do the will of God. They serve Him ready to rapidly and completely carry out His will. And each of them are capable to do it. They are incredible beings who serve the Lord night and day. But these angels in particular have a special task. They appear once more in Ezekiel chapter 10. And in Ezekiel chapter 10, they're identified as the cherubim. And cherubim throughout Scripture have a very specific role. They are the guardians of the glory of God. They protect God's glory from the profane and the unclean and the sinful. You remember in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve are exiled east of Eden? Do you remember what God sends to guard the way back into the garden? He sends a cherub with a sword that goes in every direction. He would not allow a human being to enter into that garden temple again. And in Solomon's temple, embroidered on the veil that separated the Holy of Holies, the throne of God from the holy place, were cherubim warning people that the glory of God would not be offended. They were warning people, do not pass through this curtain. The glory of God is on the other side. And then once a year when the high priest would go beyond that curtain, there on either side of the ark were two magnificent statues, cherubim with wings outstretched, guarding the throne of God. And that's exactly what they're doing here. They're flying around the throne, wings outstretched, singing praises, watching from every direction. Every approach to the throne is covered. You know, if you wonder why so many eyes, I imagine that's the answer. They are perfect sentinels. They do not allow anything unworthy or unclean to come near. Nothing escapes their sight. Nothing approaches the throne of God that does not, isn't seen by them. And yet, when they worship and sing, all of the elders on the 24 thrones join them. And you get the picture. The church and the angels worshiping together. We, we hear about that and say, oh yeah, that's what heaven is like. Well, you, don't you understand? Uh, fallen human beings and angels throughout Scripture are not that friendly. <laughs> but here, their worship is acceptable. The sword is in the hand of 
that is in the hand of the angelic guardian is put into its sheath. And now this paradise, this garden, the true temple of which every earthly temple is just a reflection, it's off limits no more. No longer must these angels drive men away from God or warn them before they draw near. Instead, these guardians of God's glory and the recipients of His grace are all worshiping together. That's what's happening here. It's a, a heavenly worship service. And if it hasn't been clear yet, let me make it very clear now. This is not primarily a vision of the heavenly throne. This is a vision of the heavenly temple. The throne is the focal point. The one seated on it is the feature. But this vision being described is of the heavenly temple of the Lord. The temple that all earthly representations were just copies and shadows of. Point eight. So if you want to know what heaven is all about and what eternal life will be like, here it is. We will be worshiping the Lord God Most High. Sometimes you, you hear that and think, well, does that mean that heaven is going to be one long, continual, unending church service? Kind of like what we're doing right now. You know, I heard this before, and I used to think that heaven would be like that. And of course, you know when I say the heavens, what I mean is the new heavens and the new earth, the place where we'll be spending our eternity. We're not going to be spending forever as disembodied spirits in heaven. We're going to be spending eternity in, on the new earth. Revelation, Ezekiel, Isaiah, they describe that as our, our home, the new earth with glorified bodies. But I used to think that, well, we were there, it would be a continual church, uh, church service. Songs and preaching with a lot more bowing down. And I know when I was little I would hear that and I would think, I don't know if I can do that <laughs> for all of eternity. Now don't misunderstand me. I look forward to it as much as anybody here to see the Lord and bow down and lift my voice unrestrained in worship. But is that what we're going to do for hundreds of billions of years? Well... When you read through the Bible, what you'll discover is that eternity will not be a continual church service. It won't be an eternity of nothing but songs and preaching and bowing and praising. There will be that, but there'll be more than that. Now, it will be an eternity of perfect worship. And what is worship? It is doing what is pleasing and obeying God. Doing what is pleasing to and obeying God. Yeah, it would be like somebody who says, well, I worship God on Sunday morning and then the rest of my life I don't worship Him. The rest of my week is not worship. Anyone who heard that would say, I don't think that's how it works. And we understand that's not how it works. And we have time set apart for a specific kind of worship, but all of our lives are to be worship to God. And in heaven, in eternity, that's what we'll be doing. Worshiping God perfectly. Uh, do you know what I think the best example of what the new heavens and new earth will be like in the Bible is? Not, it's not in the prophetic visions. It's not in the book of Revelation. Now they describe it symbolically, but where in the Bible is the earth most like what the new heavens and new earth will be? Where we're going to live for all of eternity? It's Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. That's the perfect and good world. Man walked with God in the garden and how did Adam worship? God told him, tend the garden, multiply, and fill the earth with image bearers. Take dominion over it. And by doing that, Adam would have been obeying 
and worshiping God. And what I think will surprise many Christians about, how et- about eternity is not how spiritual it will be, but how similar it will be to the world that they now inherit. In fact, it's all throughout Scripture. It points to a new creation that we will forever and perfectly inhabit. A new earth. Noah is a picture of this. Um, he comes out of the ark and is a new kind of Adam in a new world. Canaan, in some degrees, when the Israelites come in, it's described as the garden of the Lord. And the prophets, I mean, just read Isaiah 55, uh, 65 and 66. God promises that He will make the world anew. John, John's Gospel, the birth of Christ, is described like the creation in Genesis. In the beginning was the Word. And in the first, uh, we are called as believers, new creations. Elsewhere, the first fruits of a new creation. Believers are called, um, in Romans chapter 8, it says that we will inhabit a new earth. And the whole earth itself is looking forward to the day where things will be renewed and made new. First Peter, Second Peter says, we look forward to a new heaven and a new earth. And in that place... You will worship perfectly forever. Not just in song and in preaching and in praises. That will happen, but the work that you will have to accomplish will be done perfectly to the glory of God. And cities will be need, needing to be governed, and they will be governed perfectly and uh, all to the glory of God. Places uh, in the world will be filled to the glory of God. There will be feasts and festivals to the honor of the Lord. Works of art will be created to His glory and it won't be confined to a single location. Now, I'm sure there will be one, but we will worship God forever, perfectly, in spirit and in truth. And the point here is that whenever you see worship in the book of Revelation, it's that our lives will finally worship the Lord God perfectly in everything that our hands find to do. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that something you look forward to? Have you ever sung praises to the Lord or you've been praying earnestly and you've came right up against the limitations of your flesh? Right? You, you know the praises are falling short and the prayers are falling short of what your spirit wants to, wants to convey. It's like it's built up in you and it just can't find a vent. The flesh just doesn't have enough in it. You can't sing loud enough or intense enough. You can't pray enough. You can't find the right words. And you know it's not... It's not enough. It's falling short and you just wish there was more that you could put into it. In heaven, that will never happen again. In anything. We will perfectly worship God forever. I was kidding. Point nine. Not before great trials and tribulation. Here. We look forward to that, but we have... We have a narrow, difficult road to walk before we get there. You know, the song of the church in verse 11, it's different from the song of the angels. They sing, holy, holy, holy. The song of the elders is different. God's people sing of their creator. They sing, worthy are you, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Why do they sing of Him as Creator? Why don't they sing of Him as Redeemer? 
Well, they will sing of Him as Redeemer in chapter 5. But why Creator? Well, for one, it is God the Father on the throne who is the Creator. Second, it reminds us that a new creation is coming, one without sin or stain of sin. And third, most importantly, this song recognizes God's faithfulness and sovereignty over the suffering of His people in the world. It reminds us God is Creator. He controls all things. By His will they existed. And once they were created, they didn't all of a sudden escape from His will or control. He made them. He owns them. And they are always under His authority. Even Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Uh, Spurgeon would say there's not a maverick molecule in all of creation. Not a single thing uh, does not, uh, a dust mote, he would say, does not fall through the air apart from the path that God has drawn for it. Why is this so important? Again, where are we going in verses 6 and 7? We're not going to things that we really like to think about. Seals will be broken. Horsemen will come. Plagues will inflict. Wars will rage. Destruction will happen. That's what's coming. What do we need? We need a glorious picture of God. He is our atonement for our sins. Our sins can't condemn us. He is the covenant-keeping God. He has redeemed us and made us acceptable in His sight. Death cannot hold His people. He is the Lord who will always deal justly and bring every wrong into account. He is the God who is served by hosts of angels. The mercy seat and majesty of the One on this throne, it's meant to leave us in awe and ready to entrust ourselves entirely to Him. God on His throne, the faithful Creator, is enough for those who are suffering. And in some ways, Revelation chapters 1 through 7, they're an exposition of 1 Peter 4, 17, 18, and 19. It says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. That's what's coming in chapter 6 and 7. Seals are going to be broken and from them are coming horsemen and wars and famines and death and God's people are going to suffer. But they will be suffering according to the will of the One who sits upon the throne and who is the trustworthy and sovereign Creator of all. When trials come, and not just personal, but catastrophic. I mean, we're living in an age right now where it seems the whole of civilization could collapse at any moment, doesn't it? Right? Things that we thought were so stable and so secure in a very short amount of time have been exposed as perilously fragile. Suffering at a large national scale. It's not as remote as it once was. Everybody in this room can agree about that. Economic disaster, medical crisis, political upheaval, a groaning earth, wars, mass destruction. None of those things seem too distant right now, do they? 
They seem frightfully real. And if you want to weather the storms that may come, you need a God who is on His throne. You need a God who is the creator and sustainer of all things. You need the one who holds the life of every living thing and the soul of all mankind in His hands. You need the one who works and no one can say to Him, what have you done? You need the God who is sovereign of all things, who is all wise, who never miscalculates or makes a mistake or stumbles. You need a God who, looking down at this earth, never says, what have I done? And you need a God who knows and who is wise and who promises to never stop doing good to His people that even so even if they die, they shall live. You need a God who is God. And come what may, we can entrust our souls to Him. Let's pray. Lord, thank You that You reign over all things that there is nothing that escapes Your hand or Your sight. Thank You, Lord, that every trial we can rejoice in. We can count it all joy when we encounter trials of various kinds, knowing that You are at work for our good and for Your glory. Lord, when we enter into Your presence finally, after what seems like eternity but is only the beginning of eternity, Nothing we have endured in this world will seem to have been great. The only thing great in our sight will be You. Lord, we look forward to that day and I pray, Lord, that You would give us a greater vision of Yourself and who You are. That we might be able, with Job, to put our hands over our mouth and say, You are God and You are enough. I don't need everything answered. I just need to know You. Lord, You are our great need. Lord, do not withhold Yourself from us, but pour Yourself out in abundance, we pray, that we might cling to You, hold fast to You, as You hold fast to us and keep us. Thank You, Father. And it's in Your name we pray. Amen.